All right, welcome back to Lindroth Hockey Podcast. We are in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions, LLC. You're here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Excited to have our guest on. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll go right to it. Yeah, I'll get right to it. So we're excited today to have Mark Strobel. So as a player, Mark suited up for the University of Wisconsin for four years and served as captain of the team from 1993 to 1995. He played professionally for a few years between the ECHL and AHL, appearing with the Rally Ice Caps and the Albany River Rats. After his playing career, came along his impressive coaching career thus far, most notably with the University of Minnesota Duluth as an assistant coach from 2000-2002. Same thing with the University of Nebraska and Omaha from 2002 to 2004. And then as an associate head coach of Ohio State University from 2015 to 2017, and is now currently serving as an associate head coach at the University of Wisconsin as a Badger since 2017. I'm winded. He's got quite the resume. I sound like his mother, I'm sure. Mark, it's great to have you today, man. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be here and looking forward to the discussion. The other thing um, that I'd just like to add to the resume, and again, I don't, I'm not a guy that throws it out there. I did coach a year with the Twin City Vulcans, which in 1999-2000, we were actually being sold to, which is now the Tri-City Storm in Kearney, Nebraska. Yeah. And um, interesting enough, it's where I really truly cut my teeth. The year before, I was a volunteer in 98-99 at uh, Colorado College with Don Wuchia. So the reason I bring that up is uh, you get to where you want to be sometimes, and there's so many forks in the road. But coaches today and, and guys that want to get in the business sometimes aren't willing to pay that price to make, you know, 10 grand or seven bucks an hour working at the facilities department just so you can make practice at three o'clock, which, again, I had to do. And, and um, I, I hope, uh, you know, the listeners out there on your podcast and guys that want to get into coaching are willing to have that passion and pay that price as well. Mark, you've got an incredible resume, uh, especially with the coaching that Andrew just mentioned. But uh, you also played for your alma mater, which you're coaching at, uh, Wisconsin Badger. And you served as captains for two years there. But take us back even further. You dominated your high school playing days with the Hill Murray School in Minnesota from 89 to 91. And uh, so you've had a whole slew of, I'm sure, uh, colleges trying to recruit you. So what led you to the decision to, first of all, go on to college and not uh, continue with the juniors or, um, you know, not try to go pro then? That's a great question. And like I said, everyone has a different path. My path presented itself on the east side of St. Paul. I grew up in Herb Brooks's neighborhood, uh, uh, kind of on the tougher streets. And um, my twin brother and I just, you know, lived at the playground and we were very fortunate to go to the private school. We paid our own tuition. Um, you know, it was, it was, not the best upbringing, but again, we, we made do. And uh, I was able to go to a very powerful high school that had hockey uh, in its bloodline for, for several, several years of state championships and D1 players. So I saw that as a way out and hockey became that conduit uh, for me to have that opportunity. And I was very fortunate that I kept working at the game and uh, Hill Murray provided that, uh, had a few good years there, won a state championship. And um, I, you know, very fortunately had about 10, 12 college offers and um, picking Wisconsin. Uh, there was a gentleman that had uh, been a captain here prior and Steve Rollick, who I ended up working for 
or working with at Duluth when Scott Salen first hired him and I on his uh, original staff when he got the job. And then he later hired me at Ohio State in 2015, um, was, was a good friend and a mentor and had some success in Wisconsin. I was heavily recruited by Minnesota. And, um, you know, it's hard to pass Minnesota up when you're a Minnesota kid and the success they've had and the pressure there. But I think at the time in my personal life with my family and, and my twin brother was able to play with me in college, uh, Wisconsin became a great fit. They were winning. I wanted to go somewhere that could win or have an opportunity to win a championship. And um, it worked out. But the, the likes of North Dakota and Duluth and Minnesota and uh, even a few Eastern schools, Providence, uh, Lake Superior State at the time, I just felt really honored through the whole process of all of it. So when you're, and this is, you know, back in the early 90s when you're going through this, not today, which we could talk about later with you recruiting players for the Badgers today. What was the recruiting process uh, like for, for you? Uh, they're coming to you. Uh, are, are they trying to make deals or is it a little like, look, kid, we're going to give you this opportunity. You want to come here? Here's what our school's about. Or are you negotiating? Hey, how much ice time may I get? What, what was the process like? Yeah, another great question, because it has changed so much now with the uh, advent of the uh, family advisor. And uh, we didn't have any of that back then. It was you know, you, you had your high school coach, even, you know, I relied on my Bantam coach at the time. And basically those universities would come to your games. Um, heck, I had a couple of them come to my baseball practice when I'm out in, uh, you know, outfield shagging fly balls. I could see a few of them still wanting to, you know, hunt down the, uh, the commitment. But, you know, they would come to your games and, and um, they would do in-home visits and they'd talk to you after. And well, I'll tell you, you could walk on water when you, your coach came in and said, hey, uh, you know, Newell Brown from Michigan Tech is waiting for you after and wants to say hello to you. Or Mike Kemp from Wisconsin uh, is right outside, so get your gear off pretty quick. And just for them to say, uh, we really liked what we saw. We want to build a relationship. We want to get to know who you are and your character. And, you know, they'd come to your house and sit down for, you know, an hour or two and even have dinner with you. It was pretty special. And you could ask questions back and mirror you know, what they were trying to do as, as coaches and leaders and what their values were. And um, you saw kind of the cutthroat part of the business as well, where, you know, some guys would tell you, hey, you're, you're going to be in the top two or top four as a freshman. You don't have to play junior. We want you right now. And, you know, my realistic mind sat and looked at lineups. And, and um, at that time, when you're being recruited, you kind of look at schools and their, and their rosters. And I'm going, man, there's a lot of good college hockey players out there that you know, paid their dues. And at, at times you could kind of sniff out the fact that all I was looking for was someone to be honest and say, Hey, I'm going to give you an opportunity. What you do with it is up to you. You need to work hard. You need to bleed for your teammates and you need to be a pillar of the uh, institution that we serve and make sure that you're respecting it every day on and off the ice. So you became a captain of your team as a junior. And I know times are different now, um, especially in the, in the hockey culture and everything, but you know, I've always wondered, what does it truly take without the question sounding too broad or general? What does it take to be a captain and what kind of personality does it take to command the room, to also gain the respect of the coach? Obviously, we're Bruins fans, kind of a Bruins-based podcast, so I look at the difference in personality of a Bergeron and Chara. So how do you kind of find that balance to be captain to, you know, gain respect from everybody? You know, that's a great question. As you, as you age, uh, you find out who you are and, and – uh... I was very fortunate to be a captain, 
you know, in grade school, and then it was in Bantams and Pee Wees, and then it evolved into high school. And then, um, you know, I was just myself. I, I think the, the parallels is you have to be very selfless, but you also have to be very direct and honest. And you have to be uh, able to massage situations where um, you're always um, looking out for the best interest of the team and not your individual um, uh, statistics, or at least that's how I looked at it. And if a guy was cutting a cone in a dynamic run, you know, at the McLean Center here at Wisconsin, when I was at Wisconsin, I would sprint up to him and I'd say, hey, I just saw that. And you don't think every other guy on the team saw that? I said, that will not win us games. That is not how we do it here. You go around the cone because that's what the strength coach said to do. And then I'd run to the strength coach and say, we're going to do two more. So I, I think it was, it was pulling out the best of everybody for the common good of the team. And at times, you know, decisions could get skewed because, you know, guys did want to make the NHL. They want to play pro hockey. They felt like if I get 30 goals in college hockey, you know, I'm going to better myself. So I was constantly a psychologist saying, hey, the 30 goals will come, but let's win a national championship. And then more guys will have the opportunity as well to uh, carry on. And that might be that guy that blocks a shot with his face or is just that defensive defenseman who's always, you know, uh, boxing out in the net front. He's as valuable as you are. And I would always drive that home uh, with our team. And um, to me, it didn't matter who scored the goals. And to me, it still doesn't. Um, but, you know, in high insight, what I deal with today now as a coach, different from back then as a captain, is it is very uh, individually driven. So for me to try to meet guys in the middle and remind them um, and, and use the leadership that I was able to have, and, and believe me, I made mistakes too as a captain. Sometimes I could, I could be too hard, and uh, it, it affected my own uh, individual play because I, I watched guys um, do some things that I just didn't agree with. And you didn't want to embarrass anybody, but you felt like you needed to police it at the right times. But, uh, uh, I just felt really blessed. I felt like, you know, maybe, uh, I was given something as a person that, uh, I, I could be a leader and I, I just was myself. And fortunately they elected me as a junior and we had a lot of veteran guys on the team, you know, 23, 24 year old guys from Canada and that had played junior hockey. And I was 20 and, um, I still look back and, and I thank them every day for at least uh, instilling me that opportunity. And it was about winning and it still is. I, I, I wanted to win so bad here that I think they knew that and they knew if they could ride a bit of that passion, that good things had happened for them too. So I'm going to leave this open-ended for you to kind of give us uh, maybe two stories. If you could pick out of their Wisconsin days, two major highlights that were very impactful for you. What would they be during your time at Wisconsin as a player? Wow. Two, two would be hard to say, but I'll just say what comes to my mind right away. Cause there were so many good ones. And uh, you know, a, a, a hockey player that was a team guy, will always tell you what he misses the most is a locker room and the brotherhood and the relationships that he was able to build even before practice, you know, just shooting the breeze of the guy next to you and, you know, you, you never thought it would end and it does, but I think one of them was in 95 uh, when we were picked sixth and Jim Carey uh, had signed late August as a goaltender with the Washington Capitals and Kelly Fairchild, another one of our star forwards had uh, left early with the LA Kings and left us a little limping uh, into the WCHA season. And so we were picked sixth. We ended up just working hard, overachieved, had a lunch pill, bunch of guys finished second. Uh, won the playoff title in, in St. Paul and then uh, 
came back here to the regional in, in Dane County Coliseum in Madison, beat Michigan State with a very good Anson Carter team. And uh, Mike Buzak, their goaltender, was stellar. And then we uh, lined up with Michigan to go to the Frozen Four that year here at home. And uh, the likes of Brendan Morrison and Waterill and um, uh, Marty Turco, they were pretty loaded. Uh, we lost four to three. But that season to me proved that you don't have to have the best team. You just have to have the team that cares about each other and is willing to work hard and then find ways um, to, to, to make plays and score goals. The second one probably was the run we had in 92, my freshman year uh, with again, a, a team that had won at 90 and we still had a bunch of those carryover guys and Doug McDonald and uh, Barry Richter and Brett Kurtz and Chris Nelson. And uh, it, it was a very uh, telling um scenario for me as leadership to say, you know, Wisconsin is a, is a powerhouse hockey program. We, we bled for the front of the Jersey and, and we ran ourselves. I think uh, we went maybe nine and zero down the stretch right up to the championship game against Lake state. And then we had the debacle in Albany where uh, we had a three, one lead. And I think the penalties might've been 11 to four or something. Um, we had a three, one lead and then all the, the wheels came off a bit and we lost five to three. And I think Brian Ralston had a hat trick, but, it was a great experience. I went from winning the 91 state tournament in Minnesota, which is a big deal, right into the final in 92 within, you know, seven, eight months. And I thought, man, I'm going to have a championship state ring and then a national title ring. It's just everything was happening so fast. But those are two great memories. And then I, I can encompass all of the uh, friendships and um, just battles that I had against opponents in uh, college hockey that I that I still feel just grateful for that I was able to participate in. So, Mark, my favorite question to ask guests: What is this story, uh, or tell us a story of you signing your first pro contract? A big deal for every player. Absolutely. I um, my, mine's probably a little different because I was a free agent, and at the time when I played in the '93 World Junior Team, um, you know, I was more of a role guy. I was I probably the seventh defenseman and so I got some limited ice in Sweden that year, but uh, it was still my draft year again because I was a young uh, sophomore and um, I had talked to Calgary. I had talked to uh, Detroit, uh, a few other teams, and I thought I'd go in the fourth or fifth round. It didn't happen. I was a little undersized in height, but my heart and, and effort was there. And ironically, if you're, you know, you guys from being out east, you rewind the page there, Lou Lamarillo speaks for himself and I had a, a, a stepbrother-in-law that played at Providence College. His name was Jeff Whistler, and Jeff had um, finished there, I believe, in 80. And so my dad had driven my brother and I out to the Providence College hockey camps um, for a few years. And, and uh, I met Lou Lamarillo for the first time there. And Lou started calling Bill Zito, who was my agent at the time, who's now the GM of the Florida Panthers. And Billy had finished his... Uh, law degree here at Madison and was our grad assistant and picked up the likes of Doug McDonald and Dwayne Dirksen and Blaine Moore and I ended up having Brian Rafalski. So uh, he was the guy that showed the most interest. So anyway, I, um, he had said that Lou called and, and Detroit had called uh, Kenny Holland and those were the two teams and actually Newell Brown who recruited me at Michigan Tech was in Adirondack at the time. So I, I, I can say this and, I'll, and, I, and I'm probably not it wasn't the most thoughtful, but at the time, New Jersey offered me 5,000 bucks to sign and a two-year deal with an option um, to sign an NHL deal, but it had a three-way in the, in the first part of it. 
AHL and East Coast League because back then they were completely loaded with defensemen. Uh, and Tommy Abelin and Danico and Nita Meyer and, and uh, the big boy, Scotty Stevens, were all up on the big team. And then the likes of, uh, you know, Bombardier and McAlpine and uh, Jordy Kinnear and, and Sheldon Surrey were all coming up in the minors. So uh, I just picked New Jersey because I respected uh, Lou so much and I knew he'd give me an honest opportunity. And then, um, you know, I had five grand in my pocket and I, I remember looking at day or two before I was minus $20 in my checking account, I think, uh, with, with my check card. So, but, but I, you know, I never look back and regret anything. I think Detroit would have been a great fit too for me and I would have loved playing for Newell Brown. Uh, but that's kind of how it happened. And then I ended up, uh, signing basically back then they faxed it to me and I signed it, faxed it back and then went to camp early and, and a real good man who's now with Boston as well. Kevin Dean had, uh, kind of take me under his wing. He probably doesn't remember it, but I went to camp early to show those guys I was hungry. And I remember skating with Kevin and he's a Madison, Wisconsin native and just a hell of a guy. And um, so he just kind of gave me a little bit of the lay of the land, my first uh, NHL camp. And if you don't mind me segueing, I, I go to my first camp and, you know, it's pretty intimidating. And I thought I was a tough kid, but, you know, probably five eleven and a half, you know, 200 pounds. And I looked at, uh, Danico and Stevens, I go, holy moly, man, these guys, they're, they're Neanderthal, man. They were big boys, but, uh, I got through the, uh, the, the, the physical part. And then I, uh, end up accidentally high sticking Bobby Holik in my first camp. Uh, he's coming down on a three on two rush. And I, I go try to kill the play on zone entry. And so he's cut, he's bleeding. And, uh, Sean Chambers, uh, his nickname was Bundy. I go back to the bench. He goes, Hey man, I know that was an accident, but you got to keep your head up now the next shift or two. And oh, I go, Hey, geez. and I'm going, it was a total accident. He goes, I know it was, but that's not how Reed Simpson's going to perceive it. And I said, who the hell's Reed Simpson? Mm. So my next face off, I get the tap on the shin pads and Chris knuckles. Nylon is the guy dropping the puck. He's an assistant coach at the time. And all he's doing is staring at me. And I'm like, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> And Reed Simpson turns and, and just stares at me. And now the east side of St. Paul kicks in. I go, oh, I, I know what's going on now. So I pretty much um, have to square off with him and I hold my own. And uh, Chambers goes back to the bench and he's like, Jesus, good fight, man. I just keep surviving. I go, how many days of camp we got of this stuff? I, I so I go back to the hotel and Billy Tito calls my hotel room. And again, we didn't have cell phones. He's, he patched me through to the operator at the front desk. And he says, uh, he wrote bluntly, he goes, what did you do today at camp? I said, I got jumped. And he said, well, Lou wants to offer you now 40 grand and a two year and, a, and an option. And uh, is 45 okay in the minors in the American League? And I said, I'll, I'll take it and tell him I'll fight Reed Simpson again tomorrow for 80 grand. <laughs> so that was my way into making money in pro hockey to start. So, um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of, you know, especially Canadian boys will, will get their first taste of real men playing against real men in juniors. But yeah, what was, was it a shock when you were suddenly playing against, you know, the guys that you just mentioned? I mean, it must've been like, holy shit. What, you know, you got confidence, but you're like, this is, this is still, <laughs> yeah, yeah this is not NCAA. No, I, I, man, I gotta tell you, I bit off a lot of, of, uh, situation there that, that I didn't know I could chew on because 
Um, they had just won the 95 cup. It was a strike year too. So it was half a season. And those guys, I think were still ready to get back out, uh, you know, for the 96, 97 season. And I remember Claude Lemieux being a holdout and then he finally came into camp. I remember seeing him in the locker room and he was probably a good six foot two in my mind, about 225. And, and these guys were physically just big men. And, and, um, so it, it was very intimidating. I wouldn't admit it back then. You just kind of stay in your lane and uh, do your best. But um, th- you could definitely see who was the leaders in the room and the egos. And and um, I remember doing a one-on-one with Stefan Richet, too. It was, again, 6'4", 225, and I'm 5'11 and a half. And I always rounded up, said I was six foot. But I could tell trying to get my reach around him in a one-on-one puck protection drill I could have, I could have stood there for hours and I would have screwed myself into the ice. I, I couldn't get the puck from them. So I then had to start changing my mindset and, and use different tactics because I was able to get away with physicality and puck moving and rushing the puck every now and then in college hockey. And I was, I thought a pretty solid two-way defenseman. And it then became, I, I went out and sought out the, the, again, the Sean Chambers and the Kevin Dean saying, Hey, how do I, how do I play here? And they're like, if you see Peter Sikora, you put it on his tape. If you see Neil Broughton, you put it on his tape. If you see Randy McKay, uh, you put it on his tape. So um, this will be a funny one. And, and again, I, I'm not sure uh, the viewing audience, how many people will see this, but I remember Mike Peluso, uh, the, the big uh, longtime NHL, a tough guy and really nice guy. And, I remember threading a, a stretch pass right up the pipe and it hit a stick and, and, and it cupped and went for an icing and he comes back to the bench and he says, you know, put it on my tape and I'm under my breath. I'm like, Holy shit, I couldn't have made a better pass. You know, I, and I want to say catch the goddamn thing. And I, you couldn't because he was Mike Peluso. So, um, you know, and I'm going, you know, I, you had to just fit in and then earn your, merit and respect and and but it, to to answer your question as a free agent coming from you know what i thought was a very good amazing college hockey program you became a small fish in a big pond fast nobody gave a shit they didn't care it was you know do do the best you can and again i just went back to being a team guy and and listened to chambers and um and kevin dean and and just hit out my passes i defended hard i kept my mouth shut and then I was able to, uh, you know, I, I guess fit in after that. So going back to when you signed your first pro contract, we did kind of talk about this off the air, but I did want to bring it up again because we just had him on the show. First of all, that roster, like you had mentioned off air, has about 50 players from that team that year. But I know it's familiar named Darren Colburn, who we just had on the show. Did you play with him a lot on the team during that time? How well did you know him? Well, when I got sent to Raleigh from Albany, uh, they had a lot of ups and downs back then. Um, he, he, I had only seen him for a couple of weeks because um, I think he had got traded within the East Coast League from somewhere, and he was had a reputation as being a prolific scorer and, you know, just get him the puck and he can snipe from anywhere. I remember him being a great guy and, and a team guy, and, you know, he had the uh, Eastern accent. And for me, I just – I always blended well with anybody wherever they were from as long as they had passion for the game. And they respected their teammates and, and uh, they were about team first. And uh, I just remember him being a really good guy. We had some pretty good leaders on that team. Uh, Lyle Wild Goose was down there who had played at Providence and just a class act. And 
Um, but it was different, certainly than the American League. Um, I think there were some guys that, you know, you had kind of deem as lifers and they knew they weren't getting the call up. So uh, I don't think working out or, uh, you know, probably taking care of their bodies like they should have back then was important. It was, you know, how quick can you get to the bar to have a little bit of a, a chicken parm and a beer lunch uh, if we didn't have game days. But uh, great, great people, great guys. Uh, you, you learn a lot, again, being uh, not only away from home, but meeting the melting pot of, of, of hockey. So uh, we had Russian guys that couldn't even speak English. And uh, so it was very interesting. The only, I, I wouldn't say dislike I had with pro hockey is it became a bit more selfish. I think guys really truly were, you know, at times, uh, you know, wanting their call up or I'm, I'm not getting where I need to be. I need to call my agent or I'm not on the power play now. And uh, what you learn as a coach is role acceptance is huge. And if you can get guys to buy into that role, uh, you might have been a scorer in college. Now you might have to be a checking left winger in pro. And if they're not willing to do that, um, it's a short ride out of the business. And um, it became more of a business. And that was kind of a little bit of the only uh, dislike I had. So another name that I did want to bring up that I noticed you're with at Raleigh and then you went, you went to Albany with you too. I don't know at what point, but uh, I know I'm going to say the name wrong, but for our former Bruin fans, Christoph Aliwa. Yeah. Pretty, pretty scary to imagine both of you guys on the ice at the same time. <laughs> so uh, do you have any crazy stories with him on the ice? Oh my gosh. Yes. So I played with Ole uh, two years and, and he was a big man. He was legit six, five, and he was an Adonis to say the least. Um, and back then in the American league, I played more games in the American league with Ole than, than in Raleigh. He, he got up and down a little bit there, but knew he had to make it as a fighter. And, and uh, that was a good sense in him as, you know, he wasn't going to make it by being in the top six, you know, uh, especially in Albany, we had Patrick Heliash and Sakura and Vadim Shrifianoff and, and Stevie Brule was a great player. Um, anyway, he, he realized his role, but every time you're on the ice with Ole, I thought a line brawl could happen because two guys would go after him after every whistle. And then sometimes three guys and he'd muck it up with them. And then you'd have to be pulling guys off him. So the flow of the games could always get distorted because, you know, he's out there patrolling the wing and he's hammering guys. And then he's, you know, swearing in Polish at people and, and <laughs> you didn't know what was going to happen. But I remember uh, one uh, a line brawl we kind of had in, uh, in Providence uh, against the Bruins there. And, and I believe uh, Martin Samard was his name playing for the Bruins. Um, there was a net front scrum. And Jordy Kinnear got it in with, with, with Martin and uh, Jordy got hit pretty hard from the blind side, but it was only because Ole was out there and everyone's trying to grab everybody. And um, a couple guys, uh, you know, got away from, from Ole and went and kind of sucker punched Jordy. And then three more guys tried to jump Ole again. And you're, you're just trying to pull guys off him. But, you know, he was a tough guy. And, and uh, you know, years later after I, you know, uh, got out of uh, playing, uh, you know, I followed his career and, and it looked like he did make it with Calgary. And, um, but, uh, there was some guys that were certified lunatics. Uh, I'd put him in the top 20, but, uh, I had a, I, the, the top 10 list. Uh, there's, there's some other guys that would definitely top him. Now. Yeah. Speaking of a top 10 list, we, we do bring this person up sometimes because we do, we, we live in Tulsa. Yeah, Tulsa Oilers are our team. We go and see them all the time. Of course, their coaches 
Rob Murray. So we do you have any crazy stories? I know you've you've had some good battles with him on the ice because you guys played at the same time, right? Midnight. Yeah, yeah. I believe I played against Rob in Springfield, uh, which, yeah. which at the time was the minor league of the Hartford Whalers. They were still mm-hmm. around. And I remember Rob being a, a tough, and if I recall right, uh, a right-hander that could snipe as well. He was a really good uh, two-way guy and, and playing against him, you could just tell he was a guy you'd want on your team. Uh, you know, just a consummate leader, but hard on pucks, um, uh, just uh, a complete uh, battler uh, from all facets of the game. And, and uh, I believe at the time he had a few years under his belt too. So he was kind of a veteran. And, and back then the American League was legit. I mean, it was fast. It was tough. Um, you know, you, you had to battle for every inch of ice. Um, you know, the coaches were hard on you and, you know, they knew the seriousness of, of where so many players wanted to get to, which was that one step away. And I always, you know, related to like AAA of, uh, of baseball, you know, you're right there, but you're still riding the bus. You're still eating the cold, you know, sandwiches after a game, but you're one step away from, you know, getting on the private jets and playing in front of 18,000 people in the, in the big leagues. So, um, yeah, he was a good competitor. Um, I don't remember, again, truthfully, any team being bad uh, in the American League or even the coast. Every night, you know, I, I was on uh, high alert and, and my awareness of the game was, you know, at times, you know, l- less of trying to rush the puck and, and make an offensive play like I couldn't in, in high school and college and more uh, just being aware you weren't getting your head knocked off. And so... I'm only 24. I'm young. So I don't understand the good old days of hockey and lived through those days, but I always heard crazy stories of the AHL and ECHL back in those days. I mean, even in the mid nineties when you played. So tell me, I mean, how crazy was it back then? Do you have a crazy line brawl story? I mean, something that just wouldn't happen today. Oh, I absolutely. So the first sense I got of it was I'm sitting in the locker room. I, I don't remember we were playing and I, and I look over and, I think it was Darren Kimball was a couple stalls away from me and he he's looking at the lineup from the other team, the line chart. And he's like, Oh, I, I beat the shit out of this guy in uh, Prince Albert. I beat the shit out of this guy in the, in the Western league somewhere. So he's going through the lineup of, you know, who he's got to knock out tonight. And then he's, you know, talking about the guy being a righty or a lefty and how he's going to, you know, tie him up. And right then it woke me up to go, is, is this what we have to do every evening? And in Albany, <laughs> you know, we had Robbie Fatorik and John Cuniff and Red Gendron was our assistant coach here a couple of years. And those were tough men. They were tough guys. And uh, I think their expectations were too, whether you want to fight or not, uh, somebody, you know, runs a goalie or even breeze on your, you know, top forward wrong, you better get in there and you're tying up. So, um, like I said, anything could happen at any time. I'll give you one here with um, Eric Bertrand, who, again, I thought was a great hockey player. It was hard to score 20 goals in the American League and get, you know, 190 to 240 penalty minutes because a lot of times you got the five and then you'd come out and then you could pop a goal, you know, and he was on our third line. Um, But him and Jamie Pusher, I remember, who was a big defenseman from Adirondack. He was a Detroit Red Wings uh, signee. Those guys, I think my second year uh, in the in the American League probably fought anywhere from seven to 12 times. And and I remember Robbie Fatora coming in. He says, hey, Bert, he called him Bert. He says, uh, 
playing pusher night. You want him? He goes, yep. He goes, I'm starting you on the left wing. And then all of a sudden we see their lineup and Jamie pushers, the starting right defenseman. And literally the, the referee already knew he barely dropped the puck. I think one second went off the clock on the drop of the puck. And those two literally just spread through the line at the center faceoff, dropped the puck or dropped the mitts. They went toe to toe. And those were some epic battles. He, the, the refs back then, they were scared too. I think they'd get in there about after every 30 or 40 seconds. Well, after 30 or 40 seconds, your orbital was broken or your nose is broken, or, you know, you've already got the guy nine, you know, knuckles off his, his head. And um, guys could shed the elbow pad fast. They knew the techniques of getting their Jersey off. Uh, Rob Ray is another guy that comes to mind when I used to watch him in Buffalo that he, he barely had his Jersey on ever. So it's hard for someone to grab, but um, these were legit, man. It was, uh, it was at times, you know, world wrestling federation, but real, um, uh, another one too. Um, you know, again, I think we, uh, Martin late was a guy that I believe was playing in Hershey and it was my luck all the time because I, I was feisty and, and, uh, I, I didn't have a lot of fear at times, but every time I go after a guy after a whistle or cross check, somebody it was some son of a bitch that was three inches taller and, uh, you know, probably had me by 20 pounds. So we get in a line brawl with him. The goalies are going, I'm just trying to tie him up and praying to God. He doesn't, you know, jackhammer me into the ice. And uh, I survived that fight as well. And then the last one, I bummed Russian net against Mike Grant, who was again, probably six, four. And I, and I, Robbie Fatorik didn't like me rushing the puck or, or trying to jump in the offense. And I, and I love that because I was a, a, a pretty smooth skating defenseman, but so I bum rush a net on a rebound and goaltender saves it. And I catch a cross check right in the face. I go down, I come up and I see it's Mike Grant. And he's like, you know, what the fuck are you going to do? And I go to throw a punch at him and grab his Jersey. And I missed by about three or four inches. And I go, Oh fuck, I'm in trouble. The next <laughs> four went right off my head and he, he drove me right in the ice. So I get up again and I try to spit on him and the ref's like, you just try to fucking spit on him. And I, I don't even know if he gave me a penalty. I said, what else can I do? I can't fucking hit him. I'm four inches shorter. So that, that shit happened um, a lot, a lot. And, um, you know, guys were taking pucks off the faces and, you know, half shields back then were not um, cool to wear because guys would go after you. And, and when you're playing with, you know, Surrey and Kale Hulse, I'm glad they were on my team they would go after those Europeans and some of those guys that would try to whack them, you know, after a whistle for boxing out. And next thing you know, they're like, because you have a visor, I'm going to probably, you know, try to break your jaw at some point in the evening or the next time we play it. So I know you're super focused on, uh, you know, the Wisconsin team and, and all the battles you got going on there, but it relates to what you were just talking about. Uh, you know, you look at the NHL today, you know, they're, you know, trying to get the fighting and, and the goonish sort of stuff out of it. But however, you know, you just look at the uh, Wilson incident with the Rangers last year. And uh, uh, it just seems that you need these bigger players that are going to uh, be able to respond to guys that are going to go out there and, and take a run at your better players. And it seems like a lot of teams, didn't plan for that, but now they got Reeves. They got that new kid Miller on the Rangers. He's big too. It seems like the NHL has got to bring back, or the teams have got to bring back some more uh, toughness. Uh, 
I agree with you. I think there is a place in it for the game. Um, but I'm also a purist in the fact that, you know, if you're a skilled guy, play to your strengths. So I, I don't think you need, you know, three or four fights a game, but I think there is a time and a place to warrant, you know, policing it uh, within your own uh, team and, and your own uh, personnel. Because, listen, it's a fast game. It's an intense game. And there is hitting in the game. There is body checking. And, and I hope they never take that out. Now, I don't agree with head blows. I don't uh, agree with hitting a guy when he's vulnerable. But, you know, it, it's, it's a gladiator sport, and it's not – I hope it never changes. It, it, I, I love that part of the game, and I think the, the fans do too. The fact that, you know, you're on two inches of, of steel, or two millimeters, I should say, of steel, and uh, guys are out there, you know, making passes and, you know um, – it was a Tarasov who, who created the, really the ballet of hockey with the Russians in the seventies. But I, I still loved watching the Islanders of the eighties and, and, and Bobby Nystrom and Goring and those guys and, and the Chris Drapers and, and, and uh, Malpies winning cups in Detroit, you know, th those, those guys had to find a role in, in playing hard and physical and, and, you know, intimidating defensemen on the other team and making sure that they're, uh, skill guys had three or four feet. I think you still have to have that because listen, guys do lose their minds at times. They lose their focus. They go chop a guy or they, you know, they cheap shot somebody, um, you know, to, to leave that up sometimes to commissioners and people got to review things. Um, you know, you play these teams several times a year. And I think the psychology of, of, you know, that, um, and I don't want to use the word intimidating, but the psychology of saying, Hey, you're not going to do that. The wolf pack will, will be stronger than, than that one guy cheap shot in somebody. And, and those where you, you build really good teams in that locker room and all the rings are the same size. And I think those teams that win the cup every year can go back to looking at, you know, some of those players, um, you know, Corn's a good one in Tampa the last few years and, and, and Yanni Gord and those guys, uh, you know, they just play so hard and they go to the net front, they're willing to take a cross check, but then you got to have somebody come in and, and say, hey, you're not messing, you know, with my teammate. So do you still see fighting going to continue to be relevant in the NHL, or do you think that it is going to completely weather off to nothing eventually? I think you'll still always have the uh, one or two. I, I just think, um, you know, as, as long as, uh, you know, the game's been around, I, I think hockey players have been known to be pretty tough. And, I don't think you make it a ballet sport. I think it has to still be reared as, you know, something that's a grind and physical. Because if, if, if you're going to take fighting out, then you might as well take out body checking. Because there, there are guys that are so good and so fast that the only way to nullify them is by ta physically taking them out. The, the, the stick on puck thing can work in areas. But, you know, Connor McDavid, if you don't get a piece of his body, it's hard to slow him down and, and he's so agile and shifty that, you know, you won't, you'll, you'll be minus five or six in a game. And, and as a defenseman or a, a forward track in that guy, um, you, you need to eliminate him physically or slow him down. And I don't think you should ever take that out of the game. I, I, I I'm, I'm for it. I don't think it's every shift and I don't believe in head blows, but shoulder to shoulder contact, hell, sometimes it gets guys into a game, you know, it just taking a, a shot or a pop or, you know, again, building that net front uh, presence of whether you're defending it or you're trying to get to it. Um, to me, that's the, that's the ultimate psychology of hockey is winning that, that blue paint battle.
So I want to switch to coaching, and you already you already mentioned this. You you know you paid your dues uh, in the coaching world as assisting with uh, Colorado College and and leading to your your first job in the USHL with uh, with Twin City. Uh, one quick question about the USHL: We hear quite a bit about that league nowadays. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, guys from that league now making it all the way to the NHL over in the uh, elite leagues in, in Europe. What was the uh, that league like when you were coaching it? Because we, you know, we only, we've only recently heard of it in the last five years. Yeah, great question. At the time. Um, it was it was really an uh, an excellent opportunity for a kid who was a good player to become a great player and still get recognized in those uh, 18 to 20 puberty years and to grow physically and mentally. And I look back at my own career. I, I was recruited as really a 17, 16, 17 year old kid. I could have used the year in the USHL and I think it would have you know gave me another year of confidence in college. But you know, when you have scholarships on the line and, and the, the, the moment is presented, you, you take advantage of the opportunity. But those, those kids worked so hard and they were so hungry um, to just prove somebody uh, right and wrong that it was probably one of my favorite years of coaching because it was very pure. Um, you could experiment. Uh, you could one-on-one -on -one a kid and say, you know, where do you want to go? What do you want to be? You know, uh, how you doing in school? And, and you know, you're, you Right now, people didn't grab you out of high school, and you're pretty good. But, you know, as a coach, you could grab every individual and say, I'm going to help you get to Michigan Tech on a 50%. On a you're going to you know, reach your dream, or I'm going to help you get to Minnesota and get a full ride. And uh, to me, I always said the byproduct of more players going somewhere was, was winning. And um, what happened that year, too, uh, Jim Hillman and I and then uh, – you know, God rest uh, Jimmy Johansson's soul. He was our GM, and um, we were just very holistic, very organic. We were playing at a, a, a rink that's got bulldozed uh, some years ago in Fridley. But, you know, we sharpened the skates. We sh sold the jerseys. Um, uh, you know, we had long bus rides. But we were able to talk to these kids and, and really build a team and say, you know, guys, this is what we got. And everybody wanted to get to the next level. And I think that year we, we won the national championship. I kind of deemed us a bad news bears to start. Um, but I was right there in the battle with them because my coaching goal was to get to division one as quick as I could. And winning that championship, uh, Jimmy Hillman ended up going to Kearney for a couple of years in the new uh, sale, uh, which is now the Tri-City Storm. I was able to, uh, what I thought was a dream job, get a job with Scott Sandlin um, at Duluth with Steve Rollick. And, and uh, we had to rebuild that thing fast. and. Um, you know, went on the road recruiting and then saw the world on, on uh, you know, the university's dime, but also was able to give, you know, so many dreams to kids in Canada. And, and then I went right back to the USHL. And truthfully, I remember, you know, recruiting a bunch of the guys uh, out of that league that I had seen the year before. So, you know, Luke Stofker, Timmy Stapleton, uh, Brett Hammond, some guys from the Green Bay Gamblers um, that we played in the finals. And I just remember being really tough competitors. So it, 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 it taught me a lot about taking your ego and shoving it up your ass and, and saying, you know what, if you really want to coach and Herb Brooks used to come to our games because he was scout with Pittsburgh and Herbie had coached the Vulcans, Doug Wugat coached the Vulcans. I believe um, uh, Tom Ward had coached the Vulcans, Kevin Hartzell. So I knew I was in good company. I said, man, there's a pride thing here. And I was a St. Paul guy. And I said, I, I want to help these guys 
uh, you know, leave this thing uh, with a great reputation, able to win, win the, the, um, the championship was pretty special. Uh, but the year before I made seven bucks an hour um, at Colorado College working with Don Lucci, another mentor. And I worked in the facilities department from seven in the morning till three in the afternoon. So I could make practice at three 30 and he was gracious enough to take me on the road and I'd sit up top and, and I'd watch the game evolve. And as a player, you know, you think, you know, a lot and, you know, you know, more than a coach, but until you take a step back and you put yourself in all positions and that includes, you know, from the goaltender out and uh, not only the strategy of the game and what four checks you want to run and, and um, you know, how to cut the ice in a third or, or how to run a, a really efficient power play and get the guys in the right spots. You don't know shit. You don't, it's all, you know, fictitious in your mind till you're doing it. And then you're, you're learning from the mistakes you make. But I look back and you bring up a good question. I don't mean to ramble, but you know, uh, I, in my career, having worked with Don Lucia, uh, Jim Hillman and, and Jim Johansson, and then go to Scott Sandlin, um, you know, Steve Rollick, Mike Kemp, um, now obviously Tony Granato, and then back to Steve Rollick. I, I feel really blessed. Uh, I've had so many good mentors and, and then to be coached by Robbie Fatorik and, and uh, you know, John Cuniff. Um, Walt Kyle was my world junior coach. These, these are legends of the game. And for me, I took something from every one of them and then you put your own personality on it. But uh, I feel really fortunate to be in the spot I'm in now coaching. Well, I, yeah, that's my next question is, you know, you've, Again, paid your dues, and then you you're rising, rising, and currently you're back at, at at Wisconsin. So that must mean a little bit more to you to be back at your old alma mater. How does that feel? Well, it it's it's a it's a gift. It, it's a gift from the good Lord of hockey, and and uh, the fact that this manifested 22 years later. I had a blip in the window where I got out of the business in 04 at Nebraska Omaha, and Mike Kemp is like a father to me. Recruited me at Wisconsin brought me back there as a coach from 2002 to 2004. And it was really hard to leave Duluth at the time because we knew we were building something pretty strong and we we're getting the right character guys. And Scotty Sandlin is a great friend to this day and, and, a, and a great coach and mentor. And so was Steve Rollick. But um, I got out in 04, my father passed away. My uh, wife at the time was pregnant. And so I thought the right thing to do was give up my, my passion and be selfless and, and double down and make some more money. And I got in the business world. So I was out for 11 years, but I, I coached youth hockey. And then I, I never, the game never left me. I always stayed in touch with friends and uh, Tony Granato was one of them. And so was his brother, Don, because we were Badgers and we cared about the program and we always wanted to see it be successful. We always believed, you know, Mike Krzyzewski did such a great job at Duke with that basketball program that Wisconsin could be kind of in that conversation of, you know, the top hockey program, uh, when you, when you look at all the things it offers and the players that have played here uh, in college hockey and, and um, you know, it, it, it threw me for loop, but I did a lot of soul searching. And, and when Steve Rolla called in 2015 uh, and I prayed on a long time to get back in somehow um, it changed my life again. It was like a miracle that you know, life raft got thrown. I went to Columbus and uh, what a, what a great spot that is a great program. Uh, you know, they, they, uh, I, I just have, so many good things to say about uh, Ohio state and what they did for me and Steve, um, but it got me back in. But what I had to relearn again was the advisors, the recruiting for me is the same. I build relationships. I like to fly somewhere or drive somewhere. I don't care if it's a middle of the night, meet the kid, look them in the eye, 
ask him if he hates to fucking lose. Is he willing to pay the price for the jersey he's going to wear and the gifts that he's going to be giving him? Will he give back to what that gift is given and uh, meet his parents and, and find out who he is? I, that won't change for me. But the advisors, the, the video, um, the entitlement, um, you know, getting these kids bigger than, than, than the work they've already done. And to me, it's, uh, you know, NHL, NHL, and you're the next guy that's going to make 8 million bucks. Listen, 1% of the world can do that. So for me, I prepare guys to say, hey, if that happens, great. But I want you to meet your best friends. I want you to be, you know, the uh, godfather of, of your college hockey teammate to his children and his wife down the road. I want you to be successful in whatever vocation you choose, whether it's teaching or coaching or becoming a lawyer or becoming the best uh, custodial artist you can be. Um, so that, that's what's evolved. But I've taken all my experiences in leadership and management and mentors. And to me, the game stays the same. It's, it's, it's hard work. It's letting the puck do the work. It's, it's working as units of five. It's uh, trusting your goaltender and making sure you do have a talented goaltender. And then, you know, work in the process of, of um, what are you doing every day to grow? Because if you're not, as I think Lou Holtz said, you're dying. And um, life's too short, man. And, um, but I, I love being at Madison. Uh, this place changed my life in 1991. Uh, I served on the W Club board for five years. Uh, I helped, uh, you know, nine former captains from different eras uh, raise money to build our women's rink. Uh, back in 2010, and that is just a absolute uh, diamond here on campus, the Lamont Arena. And I love what Mark Johnson has done with that program. Uh, so I feel real fortunate. But in the end, I'm I'm aware that I'm a cog in the wheel. And to me, I just want to keep giving back to to whoever I serve, and making sure that these kids uh, have their dreams come true. But they have to do it in the right way. It has to it has to be humble. It has to be selfless. It has to be hard work, and it has to be team first. So what are some of the things, you know, I mean, you mentioned the, um, the student advisors, which is, you know, I mean, we know agents get their hands on these kids, you know, when they're 14, 15 years old. Um, does it make a coach's job at a division one school like yourself, one of the better, best schools in the, in the country, it, it, does it make your job a little more difficult when this kid who you're trying to coach is also getting career advice uh, to, you know, to be a professional, like you said, you might make it in the NHL and, and, you know, is there, is there conflict there? Uh, there can be, and, and there is, depending on who that person is. Again, there's, there are some advisors that are outstanding and they understand uh, when the time is to talk to a kid. Now it, let's, it, if you're self-educated enough to understand psychology, right? If I'm telling an eighth grade kid that he can be the next, uh, you know, Sidney Crosby, and really, he's a good player, but we don't know how he's going to pan out in the next four years. He might find a girlfriend. He might get into skateboarding. He might, uh, you know, get poor grades and, and or start doing drugs. I don't know. But to me, to create that mantra of uh, these parallels that are unknown, I don't think is a good thing. You have to let the kids be kids. Let them grow psychologically, physically in the window they're in. And to me, a kid doesn't even have his driver's permit. And you're already telling him. And again, uh, I don't want to speak for others, but these, these are stories that get back to us from, from the parents, from, uh, you know, coaches that there are these promises or guys are flying on private jets to sit down with a kid, you know, who, who's in eighth grade 
and he's on a Bantam team. And the, all that Bantam coach would do is say, hey, today we're working on uh, your inside edges and, and we're working on being able to support a puck and we're being able to uh, have you understand where you go in the D zone when the puck comes back to our own end. And then he should be able to go out with his buddies and, and grab, uh, you know, ice cream or, or, or hot dogs or go to a ball game and be a kid. And, and that to me gets very distorted at this level. And the, the, the rules right now, you know, state that we can't even really talk until January one of their sophomore year, which now becomes that time of puberty where, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty decent hockey player. And that's the only thing that I just think is wrong. And when I go to some of these showcases, uh, at times there might be more advisors and agents there than, than coaches uh, that are trying to recruit their kid at the proper time. So that's the only thing that I think uh, can be a bit of a dislike. Um, and, and when the kid doesn't pan out, you can imagine psychologically that agent or advisor didn't call him anymore when he's 18 and he didn't make it. And, uh, you know, they never call the school and say, hey, you know what, I, I fucked up there. Uh, he was really good in ninth grade, but now he's uh, 19 and he can't even make a, a, a junior team. And, and to me, let the process play itself out. Be patient. And I tell kids that, hey, we're not going anywhere. Wisconsin will always be around as a Division One hockey program. We'll always have recruiters on the road when the time is right to see you evolve and, and let your talent speak for itself. And then make sure you're taking care of the homework and your relationships and, you know, your character. And, and again, that to me is the most important is being patient in the process. Because what, what's the difference if you make it at uh, 21 or 22 in the NHL or you're a bust at 17? You know, trust the process. And I think the good advisors will say that and they'll say, hey, I'm here for you. And I'm here to tell you the truth. I'm not going to go behind the coach's back that you're playing for right now and say, you know, you're getting fucked. You should be on the first line or second line and you should be on the first power play unit when 92% of the people see him as a fourth line right wing right now. And he's got to earn his minutes to get in the lineup and he's seven pounds overweight and he hasn't gone to class in a month. So th those are the things that the challenges that I think we deal with is let the game be pure. We know who the best kids are. The, the, the kids know who the best kids are on the team. But what I like about it is that, that, that top player at his window is willing to sit and say, you know what, I'm playing for this AAA team. We're 16. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy the road trips. I'm going to go up to the guy that just won three draws in a row as a defensive center and say, great job today. I'm going to go up to my goaltender who, who again, Parents invested, you know, X amount in the pads and, you know, $50,000 of playing this goddamn team and are probably in debt to say, hey, great, great job that he made seven great saves. That to me is the evolution of being a teammate, why this game is great. And when the time is right, you know, allow these things to happen. I think you see the good agents, the good GMs, uh, the good organizations. And again, for me, it's, it is the Lou Lamarillos that they, they, they they figured that out generations ago, that it's, that it's discipline, it's hard work, it's not fluffing a kid, but it's also hugging them when you're supposed to and saying, great fucking job, man. And, uh, or when you're sitting there saying, hey, you're not who you think you are. I got to help you with this. So heading into your current season, what's your mindset going in as a coach of, you know, you, you've been here uh, a lot. How are you going to handle the, 
the, the grinds and the ups and the downs? How do you mentally prepare for that? Oh, I've, I've again, uh, we have a mental skills coach here in Pierre DeBar uh, who works with the Blackhawks. And, and I did undergrad with him here and, and our relationship evolved as I got back here as a coach. But I, I, I meditate. I, I pray. I take time in the morning every day to fuel up because uh, any challenge can come every day. And for me, it's having a grateful, positive attitude and understanding how blessed I am to coach here and to coach these kids and, and being honest. And, you know, we put to, together what I call a culture wheel a few years ago and the players helped us with it, but Tony did an excellent job. It's called heart humble hockey. And, you know, it's layers of a wheel. It's a bullseye. And within those, the wheels are, are, are 12 words and it's love, it's selfless, it's accountability. And anytime we have issues now, we go back to the agreement that we made with the staff and the players and representing this institution. And that's, you agreed to go to class. You agreed because you're on scholarship that you're going to work hard. You agreed that when you represent Wisconsin, you're going to do it to the best of your ability. You agreed that when you hit the ice, you're going to work as hard as possible and listen to your coaches. You agreed that even if you disagree with somebody, you're going to still talk to them in kindness and love. And if you're pissed off, you're not going to break your stick over the boards. You're going to take a deep breath and you're going to reset. And then you're going to come back calmer in 30 seconds instead of making a dumb decision. So uh, that that's kind of what I've learned and how I've evolved as a leader and as a coach. And to me, I used to think winning was the end-all be-all. But as you talk to a lot of these guys that have won, at every level, they, they will talk about the day-to-day -day process. And you'll see the great players, you see the great leaders, you see the great coaches. Every day, they're, they're just in process of, okay, what drills can we run today that are game-like and can help these guys when you play Duluth uh, and they might be, uh, you know, stingy in their own end? How do we, how do we break a trap? Um, you know, how do we get a goalie who let in three bad goals last week back to getting him confidence saying, hey, we need to go sweep Michigan at Michigan. So those are things I think about, but I also am realistic to say you have to get away from the game sometimes. I've watched this consume people and that's all they know. And to me, I want to have conversations with parents and other people in hockey and other people in other vocations about other things, whether it's, uh, you know, leadership or wine or, um, you know, how's your, how's your father doing or, you know, uh, was he in the military? Uh, you know, uh, you know, what's the sailboat doing today on Lake Mendota? Um, right. Because any job can consume you. And then you just kind of become this robot. And, and what I don't want to uh, create and people I coach are robots. I want them to be uh, dynamic leaders themselves or people that are following their passion or willing to take risks or, or people that are saying, you know what? Um, I thought about doing this. And it didn't work out. So I'm going to change and, and do something else. And I'm going to learn about it and then put all my, you know, uh, faith and effort into it. So uh, I, I hope that answers your question. But I had to go in a different spot in my mind and challenges that have happened in my own life. And they still come up is I think meditation and prayer is great. And I think even having friends in a support unit. And I still have my best friend from college hockey, Jamie Spencer. Uh, we met in the dorms at 17. Uh, he's a vice president uh, of the Chicago Blackhawks now, just got a new job. He's been in an NHL executive for 25 years, a long time with the Wild, long time with the Tampa Bay Lightning. We still talk daily and weekly, even if I haven't seen him in months, and we support each other. We build each other up, and 
we talk in terms of, hey, you're okay, or lay your, lay your cares upon me, I can give you support because we met in that locker room and that bond has never changed. And uh, even when successes happen uh, uh, for each other, we're the first guy to call or congratulate each other and say, you know, but it always comes back. To, how's your family? How's your family doing? How are your kids doing? Uh, are you happy with what you're doing? Um, are you making an impact on society for other people, not just yourself? And I think to me, that's why we're here. That's why you coach. And if a coach gets in with for, you know, uh, his self accolades, I, I, I think that's wrong. I think you do it for the kids. You do it for the program you serve and you do it to learn and, and to serve others. We're going to uh, conclude with a couple of lightning round questions here, put you on the spot and uh, see what the first thing that comes to your mind here. So um, I'll start. Okay. Who is the toughest goalie to play against in your career? <sighs> wow. I'd probably say Marty Turco uh, in college. Uh, and then I was very fortunate to play um, in training camp against Marty Berger, my second year a pro. And I can tell you this, I, I, I could not see a space on the net. Hmm. Um, he, he even just warm up shooting or, or drill shooting uh, hands down. I, I just, the guy was a monster and, and just incredible at his movement agility. And I still bring his name up and our guys, I, I, I wish would appreciate him. He was like a third defenseman too. Um, moving the puck. So I, I'd say Marty Brodeur, I was able just to be on the ice with him. Which arena had the worst locker room? It's going back to your playing days specifically. Yep. 100% uh, was Northern Michigan. Um, the old uh, up, up in Marquette there, I think it was called Lakeview Arena. They had painted their locker room pink. Uh, they always had cold <laughs> showers. Uh, they didn't invest to it for years and they did it on purpose. Rick Comley would play the psychological games and you know, try to piss you off before you even went on the ice. So you'd take a couple bad penalties because you had, to, you had to literally get ready on top of each other. Guy, had, you know, and this was division one. We, we played in some nice rinks. Guy would get ready. Then a guy would have to go stand out in the, in the corridor so another guy could get ready. And there was no place to throw your bags. So I'd say uh, Lakeview Arena, the old Lakeview. The funniest or craziest thing to happen to you during a game? Oof. Hmm. Craziest thing. that That's a tough one. Um, I would think in 92 in Albany, uh, not not super proud of it, but um, again, that 3-1 lead uh, we lost. And, and uh, again, you can't go backwards, but uh, the officiating wasn't the greatest. Uh, we had a lot of questionable calls and Doug McDonald, our captain that year, might have had, you know, 12 minutes and penalties, got a 10-minute uh, misconduct for asking the ref uh, about a questionable call anyway. Puck goes in the net for an open netter, Lake State, you know, seals the deal 5-3 in the 92 national title game. And remember Mako Balkovic pulling the puck out of the net, and he took a slap shot right at all, all three of the referees oh. at the referee area by the penalty box, and it just missed one of their heads. And then it, like a melee pursuit, Joe Harwell, a couple other guys skated over to him and were pretty threatening. And then they were a little nervous. And then we, we didn't handshake after we go underneath in the tunnel after uh, in Albany. And ironically, I ended up playing there a couple years later, but uh, the police were there ready for us. And we we're still going after the referees and about four or five guys got off the ice fast. And again, kind of embarrassing now because we should have respected the handshake and we didn't. And we went a little nuts and the guys that were underneath, I was still on the ice. 
evidently started trying to fight the police and <laughs> took their sticks and were using those as weapons. And they got thrown in a locker room. And one of the cops, I guess, was in there and locked the door and said, you fucking guys don't come out. And there's still melee going on the ice. And then we go back to our hotel and the band, I remember, was in the bar area and they're trying to play a band and we're all somber. And we had police literally the whole evening circling our, our hotel with, with probably five or four or five squad cars just kept circling. And then we go outside and we kind of taunt them a little bit. We were still so pissed off. And uh, <laughs> yeah, needless to say that that was probably one of the toughest uh, moments I had in my career. Which player had the innate ability to get under your skin? Just one of the, the rats that you played against. Well, again, I, I think you had him on not too long ago when we talked about in our briefings was uh, Sylvain Cloutier and pro was definitely one of them. Uh, he played in Adirondack and, and a lot of respect for him. Another guy he'd won on your team, but he reminded me a lot of Eric Bertrand who we had and, but just every shift he was in the shift and, and it was like he had uh you know, a magnet to you. And, and for some reason, I just remember, uh, you know, battling him all the time and him yapping in, in college hockey, for sure. It was, uh, probably Greg Haddon. Uh, he was one. And then Angelo Ritchie, uh, he, Angelo Ritchie played at Denver and was just a little, uh, shit disturber, a good hockey player. And Greg Haddon was at Northern Michigan and, and another little guy, but you know, those guys wore their hearts on their sleeve. They were tough, but they would submarine you. They'd knee check you. Uh, they'd spear you in the gut or the balls at any time. And you just had to always be aware when they were on the ice. Wow. Mark, we can't thank you enough for being uh, on the podcast. We'll say a quick goodbye off air, but officially we want to thank you. We had a great time. Yeah, this, this has been a fun time for us. We want to thank you very much. Uh, pleasure was all mine. And uh, thank you so much for having me. I was honored to do it and keep up the great work that you're doing, uh, you know, with your podcast and, and promoting hockey. All right, Dad. Mark Strobel. What a guest, man. What a guest. Well, you know, he um, he asked, uh, you know, one of us to call him before just to say, hey, what's the expectation of the podcast? And uh, and uh, we talked and and it was, we had a great time and to create stories and the love for hockey is is evident. I mean, he's come on. He's he's coaching one of the best you know, uh, college teams in, in the, in the world. Right. And so we're lucky to have him on the podcast and, uh, he likes what we're doing. And, uh, you know, like you said, uh, we're, we're friends now and we'll, uh, you know, keep in touch with them and, and hopefully we'll meet up in person someday with them. You know, with the hockey community, you never know. Yeah, very true. And too, as you know, a young guy, it's always just fun to hear all the old stories from AHL, ECHL days, those crazy, um, enforcer days so always fun to hear the the old old timers come on here and talk especially the ones that played and obviously coach as well I mean he did coach early 2000s so um, yeah just a great guest great stories man yep and it's part of the reason why we do what we do I mean we have on a lot of players that have played in the NHL but a lot that you know didn't make it to the NHL and that certainly doesn't mean that they're um, you know insignificant or a bad player or just because they didn't make it to a an NHL game. And Mark's one of those guys where, uh, I mean, he's hundred percent hockey and he knows hockey and, you know, he's, um, you know, probably will end up being division one uh, head coach somewhere. And, uh, but he's certainly, uh, uh, you know, going through his journey and we appreciate him coming on and what a great player he was. If you, uh, 
if you if you don't know too much about his playing career, yeah, look up his AHL ECHL. He's really good, strong, tough as nails guy. So we're glad to have him on. Yeah, well, and just going in lieu with what you said, Dad, about that point that you made. Um, you know, that's why we like to get on all kinds of players on here. Just as an example, uh, our, our previous guest for episode 44, Ryan Duncan. Um, we're not a big collegiate hockey guy, so it's not like we knew um, of him super well. Um, but obviously, Hobie Baker winner. And, you know, just based on, um, you know, people's replies on Twitter's with the episode, you know, a lot of old fans, you know, that used to watch him and, um, even uh, fans that weren't a fan of the team he played for professionally, but um, of other teams and how they were scared of him and how, how good he was as a player. It's just always, like you said, um, and what Mark had made a point off air is that, you know, not every super talented player make it. It's like us as musicians, dad, where we have always said our whole lives, some of the most talented musicians in the world go unnoticed. They don't make it. So right. it's same thing with hockey players, in my opinion. Yeah. And um, it's just cool. Um very cool realizations. I mean, obviously, I didn't grow up as a hockey player necessarily. Um, but. Well, and again, small world because I mean, you just mentioned our last guest, um, Ryan Duncan. Well, when I, I'd somehow his name, I think I mentioned it to Mark when we were talking uh, before the show, and he he tried recruiting him. He's right. like, oh, I remember Ryan. You know, you know, smaller guy, but you know, talented player, and you know, obviously, he was uh, Ryan was set on to going to North Dakota, uh, but you know, he. Uh, wherever Mark was at at the time, he, he remembers trying to recruit him. Yeah. So a small world, great time. So we'll end this episode. We're getting a little long here. Okay. And uh, our next guest, uh, we have a bunch in the queue, but I think it's going to be Jeremy Gates is going to be our next guest. Yes. And uh, technically with the timeline, we are recording it today. We actually, like you said, dad, we have a pretty booked up schedule, luckily. And, uh, you know, a lot of these players and uh, coaching and staff, whatever that we're having on are actually about to, start their season Correct. so we are getting them in as quickly as possible right and, get too but we're going to try to still release you know once a week but, right you know we'll just be backed up a little bit but that's okay yeah uh, but anyway thank you to everybody and uh you know uh, we certainly want to uh thank our parent company black gold productions yes, thank you again. for uh, uh supporting us and taking care of all the distribution and we are everywhere we're everywhere podcasts are now. So door I heart as well. So and uh, we appreciate all the new listeners and uh, we thank you guys and we'll catch you next time. All right. Catch you next week.